Welcome to episode 71 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much, Jesse. What's going on with you? Here we are, back at it again, living that theology dream. Yeah. Do we ever have anything, or do we always just say not much? It seems like nothing's ever going on, <laughs> unless there's snow. We sound so unexcited. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if there's inclement weather, we'll talk about it, but I guess that's the extent of the excitedness in our lives. Yes. I guess I had a job interview on Thursday, and probably well, by exciting. the time anyone is hearing this, I probably will have heard back from the job interview whether I got the position or not, so that's pretty cool. Well, good luck to you, brother. Thank you. Luck is a non-Calvinist construct, so so good providence to you. Wah, wah. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> you could do the R.C. Sproul thing and be like, chance is no thing. It's no thing. It's nothing. Chance is nothing. Nothing can do nothing. Thanks for destroying that sentiment yeah. entirely. No problem. I appreciate the intention behind the theologically imprecise greeting or whatever So it was. on like maybe a more uplifting note... You got anything that you're affirming this week? I do. So I'm affirming one of our listeners, and I'm probably going to say the name wrong because I always say every name wrong, but I'm affirming Brian Baroom, who just before we started recording, messaged me on Facebook to tell me that there was a typographical error on our website that was causing one of the files not to load. So thank you, you. brother, for helping me out with that uh, website issue. We appreciate your support and your listening, and uh, this one is for you. I just dedicated wow, an episode like, to somebody. I was going to say, that was like a DJ level shout out. It was. How about you? I love that. What are you affirming? So this week, I'm doing an affirmation that's a little bit strange. Okay. But I'm affirming reading stuff that you disagree with. Oh, just nice. Just because I think it's a great way to make sure that you're not in a room by yourself hearing your own voice say things. So it's really good to interact with stuff with which you fundamentally disagree. That's a healthy process. I agree. I agree. But you only should do that once you've got a good grip on good, solid, biblical Christian theology. So that way you can identify what's wrong with it kind of almost instinctively. We've talked about that before. For sure. And I'm actually kind of affirming that even broader, like writ large, like in your industry, in your philosophy, in how you raise kids, like all kinds of things, not just the biblical worldview. Yeah, for sure. Just how you do different, like how you dry the dishes, how you load the dishwasher. Talk to somebody who does it differently. Okay. All right, then. That's probably more controversial. In my family, that's yeah, more controversial. That's true. That's true. The I've dishwasher actually, thing. I think I've probably had more um, conflict over like how you put the the dishes in the dish rack than over other like things you might expect. Yeah, there are hard convictions there. Yes. That struggle is absolutely real. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk to somebody you disagree with, So, which I'm not necessarily doing in this conversation, but yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> What is something that uh, you're denying this week, Tony? So I am denying us giving away free books and nobody claiming them. What is up with that? I know. So we had this five solas uh, contest and our first time around, we had five books to give away. And the first time we announced the books, we only had one person who actually claimed their book. And I think what happened is we like blasted the contest link everywhere and so people who don't listen to the show, like sign up for the contest. And then we announced the winners only on the show, which was intentional. We didn't want to give people who aren't listeners free books. So um, so I'm denying not claiming books that you win in a contest. But 
that has led us to have two leftover books to give away. So we are going to put up a new contest module uh, at reformbrotherhood.com slash contests. And we still have uh, Grace Alone by Carl Truman and Faith Alone by uh, Tom Schreiner to give away. So we're going to do one contest uh, so you can register for both books. Um, and if you win, then whoever contacts us first will get their choice of which of the two books we have. And then the second person will just get whatever's left over. But the good news is they're both excellent books. So you really can't lose. True. If you win, you can't lose. Well done. Come and get them, people. Good luck slash providence. Yeah. So what about you, Jesse? What are you denying? So I'm going to deny something pursuant to my affirmation. And that was, I recommended that you interact with those with whom you disagree. I read a lot this week on some different issues with which I disagree. And I'm denying all those things (laughs) that (laughs) I read but disagreed with. But that's the point of the exercise. Nice. It's, It's weighing it out. Yes. And one of the things I was reading a lot about this week and mulling over was this idea of synergism in salvation and in sanctification. So I thought, what better time than right here, right now, to talk a little bit about that? Because we've mentioned in our conversations before our convictions about that, but I'm not sure that we've really ever talked about why we feel convicted about how synergism either has a role or does not have a role in each of those two things. So I thought, let's just have at it. Let's talk about why we feel convicted in that way. So is that okay with you? That's, that's fine with me. Let, let me crack my knuckles because we're about to throw down, I think. <laughs> uh, take off the gloves. We'll so have let's to get start the, here. the boxing ring bell sound effect to throw in here. Ding, ding. Let's, yeah, but we're not boxing each other. That's true. We're, well, we could be. Shadow uh, I boxing? I doubt it. I very much doubt that we're going to box each other, but you never know what happens when you turn on the mics. <laughs> that's true. So let's start here. Yeah, j- that just like basically previewed some potential controversy. So turn mm-hmm. us up. So let's start with talking a little bit about salvation. Well, actually, let's just do this first. For anybody that's listening and even in our conversation, let's define terms. So how would you talk about synergism against like it's, it's kind of opposite monergism? How would you describe those like layman's terms? Yeah. So synergism comes from uh, two Greek pre- uh, prefixes. Well, from a Greek prefix and a word. Uh, soon uh, is together and uh, ener- energos or energo is working. So the word literally means working together. Um, when you look at it in uh, Latin, the prefix is co and the word is operate. So co- the word cooperate means the same thing. And so when we're talking about synergism, um, we're not just talking about two parties that are involved in a process, but we're talking about two parties that are actually contributing to the end result in such a way that the end result cannot come about without the contribution of both parties. Does that make sense? Yeah, I just love that. I said, let's go layman's, and we're such nerds that you started with <laughs> foreign etymology of the word. You know, but yeah, so that's fair. Quick side note. So when I was in eighth grade, I think, um, my uh, communications teacher, which was what we called English. I don't know why they didn't just call it English, but my communications teacher, we had to learn a bunch of Latin and Greek words because that's how she taught us vocabulary. So we would learn the word graph and how that was related to writing. And then we would learn learn the word tele and how that was related to distance. And so like a telegraph is like writing from afar, telephone is like sound right. from afar. And you know what? Like that is so helpful to me. And then when I learned Greek, it was like, I can come up with any word that I want because I can just smash all these prefixes and words together any way I want to. 
So I, I thought, I think it's helpful though in this conversation is that we see the word synergy and we think about like synergy, like working well together or something like that. You hear it in the corporate environment, like there's a good synergy in the room. Well, okay, but when we're talking theologically, especially about salvation, what we're really talking about is God contributes to our salvation and we contribute to our salvation. And nobody says that those are equal parts, but it literally has to be a, a percentage. It's a shared work. So there's a portion of the work that's done by God and there's a portion of the work that's done by us. And the final product is somehow the, the combination of our two contributions. So I think right. that it is really important for us to land on what that word means. Yeah, that's fair. I like what you said about kind of unearthing the cooperative piece. Yep. Because when we speak about these two, I'm going to say like two wills coming together in some kind of common goal with cooperative grace, that's grace that God offers to sinners and that they may accept or reject depending on the sinner's disposition. And right. probably that's going to get into how you and I feel about this. But even though we're not going to put percentages on them and say it's like 50-50 or you know, 70-30, whatever right. it is, we're essentially still saying that in a synergistic mind frame for salvation, for this reconciliation with God, that there must be some kind of hierarchy of will. There must be one will that is in dominant to the other, right? Right. So to put it another way, we've got the work of the Holy Spirit in a synergistic mind frame is going to be dependent on the creature's will. So this is where we kind of probably start to parse out how this actually plays out in reality. But even though it's easy to say, because people don't get very comfortable or don't get very comfortable, people are not very comfortable (laughs) and they probably won't be very comfortable with this idea of trying to determine, well, how much is man's responsibility and and effort and how much is God's? But we are saying that one must defer to the other. It's like a yield sign, right? We just have to pick who is yielding to whom. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, when we talk about this, the problem is that different different schools of thought sort of define this term differently. And so, you know, you have like Arminians who want to maintain that in synergy, that God is still entirely responsible for salvation. But then at the same time, they're wanting to somehow put a contingency in place in terms of man's, man's perspective. But on the flip right. side, there are those who don't recognize that just because there's two parties involved... Um, that are somehow involved in the end result doesn't mean synergy. So no Calvinist would say um, that that God saves us apart from us being a part of it. And I think that's, you know, Michael Horton is so helpful on this when he talks about kind of how, to use an analogy, he talks about how it's not as though there's a big pie of sovereignty and God has the majority of it and then we have our little slice and that slice that we have somehow limits God's total sovereignty. It's that God has his own sovereignty pie, and we have our own sovereignty pie, and the right. two pies are of a totally different type. So it's not as though like our our freedom and our our own sort of creaturely sovereignty somehow impinges on God's sovereignty. It's that he has a he has a divine creator sovereignty and we have a creaturely sovereignty. He has a divine freedom and we have a creaturely freedom. And so those two things don't like occupy the same pie to use that analogy. There it's not it's not that kind of a situation. And I think right. that the Calvinist model really is the only model that can kind of maintain that. The Lutherans kind of want to maintain that. Um but I think when you look at it they they don't actually maintain it and it's because they're not thinking about things in terms of God being unilaterally sovereign in a way that's totally different than how creatures exercise their will and freedom. And we're presenting synergism 
essentially up against monergism, right? Which mono meaning one. I can't go any deeper than that. Yeah. Um, there is same, nothing deeper same than suffix. that. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, same suffix. But mono means single. So, and when we're talking about that, at least as far as I am, and especially you often hear monergistic regeneration. Right. You know, we're, I'm describing a phrase that is the action by which God, as the Holy Spirit, is working on a human being without that person's assistance or cooperation. So, whereas we have like the cooperative grace that you were just speaking of, this would be an operative grace. So, right. I just wanted to kind of draw that distinction. But I wanted to get into like, because I don't think you and I have really ever talked about this. So, when you think of synergism in salvation, is that just oxymoronic? Or is there any place in there? And like, why, where are your convictions on that? And why, why do you have those convictions? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it really does come down to what I was just talking about is, you know, before I really started to study Reformed theology, I couldn't really understand how um, the idea that God is totally sovereign over salvation would even work. Because, you know, just from the experience of salvation, I was the one that made a commitment to God, right? I I um, prayed the prayer and I, even beyond just like sort of the sinner's prayer decisional regeneration model. I still had to engage my will to decide to follow Jesus. Right? Sure. We, I've kind of bagged on that I have decided to follow Jesus song, but there's there's a truth to it that we do decide to follow Jesus. It's not as though we are compelled against our will. Our will is changed and so we we are um we are drawn by and in accordance with our will because we've been given a new will. So for me really studying reformed theology and understanding the way that God ordinarily works in creation that he works by means of kind of pervasive influence. He's he's involved in all things. His decree is all-encompassing, and that includes whether or not I choose salvation. Uh, it's not as though God is, you know, there was there's creation, and then God lets that go, and then he sort of like intervenes in little areas. It's that all of creation, all of providence is all one stream flowing, and everything that occurs is a part of that. So for me, the idea that I somehow... Um, contribute to my own regeneration. It just can't, it just doesn't work in that framework. Um, either God decreed it in eternity past and created the entire universe such that I would choose to follow him. And everything in my life, including um, right down to when my parents would meet each other and um, when I would um, first be introduced to the gospel and who it was that I would first be introduced to the gospel by and what the context says, what mood I was in, whether or not I was sick that day or healthy, like all of those things have worked together to bring me to where I'm at and where I was at when I received the gospel and was obedient to the command of the gospel. Um, I can't figure out how that might work in a situation where God is not utterly sovereign. Um, and if he's not comprehensively sovereign, then none of that is possible because any little thing along the way um, could have changed that such that, you know, right. the context that I was in, it wouldn't have fostered me accepting the gospel or receiving the gospel. Yeah, that's well said. I think we drastically underestimate the need for a totally rebranded, repaired will. Right. And I think we think that there's some part of us that can still have some kind of like altruistic or whole tendencies to accept God. So I totally agree with that. I like, what did you say about, what did you call it? Like pervasive? Pervasive influence. Influence isn't even a strong enough word, but I think I said pervasive involvement. I'll have to go back and listen. I like that. I feel like it was influence, but I like either one of those I words. (laughs) I like that because I was thinking about this and I was really kind of marveling again at how consistent the scriptures are 
And I think what most people don't realize is when you read the scriptures from cover to cover, especially I would say in the Old Testament where it's not necessarily explicit, right. you're still reading with this mindset of either like a synergistic frame or a monergistic frame. Right. And I think you see this monergistic frame throughout, even in places where it might not be expected. So let me give you an example, because I know that's exactly what you're going to ask me. So here's my <laughs> example. So I was thinking recently about Genesis 19. So this is where the... Um, God and the angels have already visited Abraham. They've had the whole little uh, debate or the negotiating session about Sodom and Gomorrah. So the angels go down and they're hanging out with Lot. They've already said why they're there. And they're basically like, it's go time. So what is always fascinating about me about this story is like the time frame. If you're just reading through it and you're trying to conceive of how much time is passing between the initial interaction and the conversations they're having and before they leave the city, it's actually like a broad period of time. In, yeah. in other words, it's more than like 15 minutes. They're not just right. rolling in like SWAT style and they're like, get out. It's, yeah. they're, they're, there's all these discussions because uh, the lot is essentially trying to convert or in, convince his family to get the heck out. So right. Here's what's interesting to me. This is Genesis 19, 15 through 16. So let me just read a couple of verses. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Yeah. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Yeah. So here's what's interesting is even in a passage like this, where it's mostly narrative and, and I don't want to allegorize this, but merely to say there's something here where any person who's ever cared for a child or an animal knows that at some point, the merciful thing to do is to take control of the situation. And so what we have here is, I think, God affirming that sometimes the most merciful thing that he can do with our wills is to change them, to override them, because we need to be saved from ourselves first and foremost so that we can be saved onto him. Right. So I just see it it pop up everywhere in scripture that this is the the natural pattern. Like you were saying, this pervasive influence or involvement of God is a real thing. It's not just an abstraction, but here, even in Lot's instance, the, you know, are we to say like, well, it's really unmerciful for God to manhandle Lot right. and, and pull him out. But that's exactly the thing that I think in retrospect, as these readers separated so many years from this account, we would say, wasn't God good to save him? And isn't that the same thing we're talking about in salvation? Yeah, exactly. And and I actually um I I'm trying to find the link to it. I'll I'll put the link in the show notes. But I actually preached a sermon on this passage about all of the different typological things that this passage tells us about salvation. And this is one of those things that even even the lot acknowledged that the city was going to be overthrown, even though he recognized that the messengers were telling the truth, even though he's he's called righteous Lot in other places in scripture. So I think sometimes we have this tendency to think of Lot like he's he's really not a good dude. He's really not right. a follower and he just got lucky. But the scriptures don't seem to approach Lot that way. They, at least in most places, they approach Lot as though he's a genuine follower of, of the Lord. And right. even Lot still dilly-dallied. Even Lot, exactly. when the day of salvation was upon him, still dilly-dallied. And the, the angels literally picked him up and carried him out of the city. And right. you know, when you think about that, too, we don't get a good idea of the geography. Zor, the little, the little town that they go to, is not outside of the ring of destruction. So there's, there's 
a bunch of cities and Sodom and Gomorrah represent all of the cities on the plain. And all of the the whole plain was overthrown. The whole area was overthrown. And Zor is in the in the midst of that destruction. So Lot being present in Zor saves all the inhabitants of Zor. So there's covenantal language at the end. It says that Lot was saved on account of the covenant that God made with Abram. Yes. So all of this stuff happens. But I think you're you're dead on that the angels literally dragging Lot out of the city is a pretty good picture of how God saves us. Not that he drags us against our will, right? I mean, we can't push the typology too far, but in a sense, he does draw us. He drags us unto salvation, and he does that by changing our will such that we would choose to follow him. Yeah, that's right on. I like that, especially because Lot does essentially prove himself in other ways before this account as right. being righteous. So he's right. representative. And But at the same time, it's so weird to me that he tarries in this place. So clearly he wants to leave in the sense that he doesn't want to be destroyed. Right. He's, he's really vexed about what's about to happen. But just like I guess us, like he, we tarry in our sin. If left to our own devices, no matter how righteous we think we are apart from God, we're going to be foible to just sit around in our own depravity. Yeah. So it's always been strange to me that a synergistic mind frame is going to emphasize, kind of going back to like Acts 13, that as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. But the scripture says, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, comma, believed. Right. That's a big difference. Yeah. What's odd to me is the first sentence, my flipping that around, almost sounds natural, right? Yeah. Like to the untrained ear, it sounds like that's a legitimate statement from the Bible or a legitimate, legitimate expression of what salvation is. But to your point about Lot essentially being chosen from the outset, even while he's in that kind of sinful environment, I think that proves that the center sociological reality is union with the exalted Christ by spirit-created faith. Yes. And if that's true, then there's just no place for synergism. It doesn't make sense, actually. It's just unnecessary. Right. And not only is it unnecessary, but it flows contrary to every... I mean, on one level, you ask, why do we have this conviction? Well, because that's what the Bible teaches. I mean... (laughs) Amen. I I mean, I know that's kind of like the, I got you kind of answer, but in reality, like, we came to this position because this is what the scriptures teach. And... You know, I've never, I've never really been an Arminian. Um, all, all of the t- my time as a Christian, I've kind of instinctively, and I'm not sure why or how, but I've kind of instinctively just believed that God was the initiator and accomplisher of salvation. But I've never really understood how you can come to Scripture and look at the whole of Scripture and walk away as an Arminian. And that's that's not a shot at Arminians. There are, are many well-read and theologically astute Arminians, and I'm sure they have great arguments, and, and I've read many of their great arguments. But the whole scope of Scripture, it's radically clear that God is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the author right. and finisher of our salvation. He um, he initiates our salvation. He accomplishes our salvation. He applies our salvation, and he consummates our salvation. And in no part of that, and I think this is probably where things might get a little more controversial tonight, in no part of that is he dependent on our contribution to accomplish his purposes. Right. And that's yeah, really important because we do... By default, um, you know, it came up in Sunday school this morning. We do by default assume that there has to be something we contribute or something that we can contribute. So, you know, the the view semi-Pelagianism, the idea is that, well, man is fallen, but not 
utterly and entirely fallen. And so there's some portion of him that is left that's able to positively respond to God. And as long as that portion, as long as that person exercises that portion to positively respond to God, God will further give them grace. And then they positively refer or respond to that. And it's, right. it's an upward cycle. And that's the Roman Catholic model. But that's also the Arminian model. And that's where it gets so difficult is that the Arminian model wants to affirm justification by faith alone. But the problem with that is that the way they affirm justification by faith alone is sort of by claiming that God restores everyone to some sort of semi-Pelagian state. It's not that man was not uh, totally depraved, but no man no longer is totally depraved. And that's the main difference between Arminianism and, and Calvinism in this discussion is that it's, you know, Calvinism says man... Uh, Everyone after Adam was was fallen in Adam and totally depraved, meaning that there is no part of the man that is not touched by sin and no spiritual life is present. The Arminian wants to say, and I'm not sure how they handle this prior to the advent of Christ, but the Arminian is going to say, well, that was true, but the Holy Spirit has now made it such that everyone is able to respond, and those who do respond will be saved. Well, I don't see a justification for that in Scripture, and the problem with that is then that is what places salvation in our own hands. Now, yes, it wasn't possible for us to be saved apart from the work of Christ, but that doesn't change that salvation is ultimately for the Arminian position in our own hands. We're the ones exactly. that choose to be saved. Salvation is right. contingent on our will and our spiritual insight, our appropriation of facts, whatever it is. It's us that is determining whether or not we're saved, not God. And to me, that just doesn't make sense with the God of the Bible. That goes back to the whole fact that one will must bend to the other. Right. So the outworking of that is, can we be comfortable saying, as we hold up this idea against the scriptures, that man has the final say, that God must submit in a way, because that's what really we're saying. I know right. some people really quibble with that language or they bristle at it because they think it's unfair, but that's basically what we must say then. Right. That yeah. there is an impotence on the part of God, chosen or otherwise. Uh, that's a bad word because we're talking about, and like, <laughs> like in the sense that God has either said, I am willing to submit to the creature will, that's right. what I mean by him choosing to that, or he just has no real authority in this realm. And therefore, he must bow to the will of the creature because otherwise we'd be some kind of like automatons. I mean, the challenge that I see laid out in the scriptures is the divine economy, in the divine economy, men are responsible to believe the gospel, but it's clear that we're morally impotent to do so from our own native resources. Right. And that inability, like you said, comes straight out of Adam. It comes with our solidarity with him. So it's something that we are culpable for. It's like we owe a debt that we cannot pay. Right. But here's the rub. In my opinion, God has every right still to call the debt, even though we can't repay it. Yep, absolutely. And that's the problem. So the church is to call all men to repent and believe the gospel. That's the imperative. But no one believes. I yeah. mean, that's really the sadness of it. But God, in his great mercy, still has mercy on many opening their hearts to the gospel that they might believe. So I think that we find that really, my, my conviction, in other words, really falls heavily on the fact that we see that throughout the scriptures, not just where Paul is really explicitly unpacking that, but everywhere else we're seeing that that's the way in which God is normatively operating. Yeah. And just um, for those who may be listening, I don't know that we have any Armenian listeners. Maybe that's a target audience we need to get out and reach, but uh, probably not. Um, but 
people who say like, well, that's not fair that we would talk about God submitting his will to the man need to think about the fact that like C.S. Lewis in a famous statement says exactly that. Yeah, that for he, sure. He says that, you know, for those who won't say thy will be done to God, ultimately God says thy will be done to them. And that, I mean, that's right. a paraphrase. But what Lewis is getting at is that God ultimately says to the, the recalcitrant sinner, you get what you want. Well, the problem is that that same Arminian and that same C.S. Lewis is going to say, well, God desires, the he wills for the salvation of all people. And so what, what the logical outcome of that is, and not even it's not even a deduction, it's almost explicit, is God is saying, not my will for your salvation, but thy will for your damnation be done. He literally is saying, I'm not going to accomplish my will. I'm going to let you accomplish yours. And so when, when Calvinists talk about how uh, synergistic salvation, Arminianism, or when we apply that language to Lutherans and they hate it, but when we apply it to them and we say it's a man-centered theology, we're not saying um, like, oh, well, you know, you're just elevating man to an unhealthy place. I think that's true. But what we're saying is that the theological system really centers around the human person. It centers it's around the, the fact that the, the human will, the human autonomous decision is the central feature of the theological system. So just like in Calvinism, it's not predestination. It's actually God's glory, right? God's glory and his self-glorification is the central tenet of Calvinism. That's why the Westminster Catechism doesn't start with predestination. It starts with, with the purpose of man being to glorify God. For Arminian theology, the um the offer of salvation to all people and the ability of all persons to accept that is the central tenet of their theology. It all starts there and it all revolves around that. Where Calvinism is very different. It doesn't start with man generally. It starts with the glory of God and then outflows how how the salvation of man accomplishes and contributes to that glory. Contributes not the right word, but how the salvation of man redounds to the glory of God. Um, making God's glory the central tenet of Calvinism. Right. You know, one of the phrases that comes up a lot, you saying that made me think about this, was from an Arminian perspective, this kind of combative idea of the Bible speaking, whosoever will may come. And the problem with this, and we probably don't even have time to get into all the linguistic nuances of this, but well, let's do that it. phrase, whosoever will come, is does not teach an indicative of what we're able to do, but it teaches what we ought to do. And the Bible is full of both indicatives and imperatives. And I think Luther covers this like extensively in Bondage of the Will. But it's basically saying, this is what you ought to do. This is what you should do. And I'm emphasizing that you cannot do it apart from Christ. So what strikes me as odd is I think the synergistic frame seems to depreciate the idea of what it means to be made alive with Christ. So we're talking right. like Ephesians 2 style. And I think the verse is like, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So I'd like to think that, you know, if the Apostle Paul were attending a modern day prophecy conference, which I'm presuming he might not do that, but if he were. <laughs> He'd do it. Somebody, it just wouldn't be pleasant for them. Yeah, that's, that's true, actually. And that's where I was kind of going with this is if he was there hanging out, listening, and somebody was like, Paul, when will the resurrection of believers take place? I would feel like the first thing he would say is it has already become because- right. The inner self for believers will never be more resurrected than they already are. And so we have to ask if union with Christ is a necessary antecedent to salvation, then who is bringing about that union? Are we bringing about that union or has Christ done all things to make that union possible? 
And that's the thing I, I can't get beyond. The scripture seems clear on it, but also this is where the fact that God has given us logical minds, you know, Paul says, you're reasonable people, go to the scriptures, think about this for yourselves, that there's just like a whole part of the synergistic mind frame that's totally incohesive or uncohesive. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So just a short excursus. So I know we were going to try to be as close to like layperson level as we can. So this is just a deviation from that. We're (laughs) going to do it. We deviated way long ago. We're going to do a little bit of Greek here. So um, John 3.16, right? Everyone who's ever interacted with an an internet Arminian has had them just quote John 3.16 to you and like bold the word whosoever as though that settles the debate. And it's like, oh my goodness, I never even realized that that word was in the Bible. Of course, I'm an Arminian now. Of course, that's dumb. Nobody nobody does that. So John 3.16 in English is for God. This is the ESV. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? So straightforward. It's relatively simple. We don't need to – you can read that, and and I'm not trying to say you have to understand Greek to understand exactly what this – to, like, know this text. You can read it in English fine. But when we go to the Greek – I'm not going to read the whole thing first because I'm terrible at reading Greek and second because that would just be really boring. But the second half of the of the statement where it says that whosoever believes in the Greek, it's hina pas hopestuon. And what that means is hina is a it's um, indicating purpose. So it's that's the so that the purpose of God's love is so that all who would believe would not perish. But then it says pas hopestuon. And what that is, it's a clause, and it's a group of people, all the believing ones. Pistuon is a participle, and it's, an, it's a, what's called a substantive participle. And what that means is it's a, it's a verbal action, and it's the people who are exhibiting that verbal action. So runners is a uh, participle. Um, painter is a participle. So if I say all the runners, no one in their life, it would be the same as me saying whosoever runs. Right, exactly. Right? But no one in their right mind would then say, if I say, um, I established the Boston Marathon so that whosoever runs may run 26 miles in by the harbor, right? Right. No one in the right mind is going to say, well, therefore, everyone can run the Boston Marathon and there's no restrictions and there's no requirements and there's, and I didn't have any say in who it was that was. They're going to recognize right. that the whosoever runs that is a restricted group of people. Exactly. And so what this is saying is that there is a defined group of people known as pas ha pistuon, or all the believing ones. It, whosoever is not a great translation, but we have this tendency to try to make like translations into one word in Greek, even though this is multiple words. So that's just a brief excursus, but that's what we're talking about is that a lot of times when you're you're kind of confronted by an Arminian who pulls... And Calvinists do this too, so it's not just the Armenians that are guilty of this. But when a, you have someone pull out one of these verses, right, or the passage in Peter that God wills all, that no one should perish. When you actually understand the, the original languages of these passages, it is radically clear that it's not saying that the offer of salvation is efficacious to all who hear. But exactly. almost to a, to a, um, almost a one-to-one correlation if you really understand it, they're all restrictive of those whom God has chosen. Now, this passage doesn't have a restrictive sense to it. It's just saying that the ones who believe, the believing ones will be saved, such that no one who believes 
will not be saved. That's what the passage is getting at. It's not trying to say that whosoever is this unbounded category, that all people have the will and desire to be saved and just need the right information to be presented to them. And that's a much better promise, isn't it? To know that the covenantal God is exhibiting a faithfulness to his promise by saying all the believing ones will be saved. There's not one who believes who will fall away. So yep. let me compliment that by something in totally in English. And this is from, <laughs> I just found this quote real quick. This is from Luther from his bondage of the will, just real quick. So here's what he writes. And he's talking about that whosoever kind of quandary. So he writes this, does it follow from turn ye that therefore you can turn? Does it follow from love the Lord thy God with all thy heart that therefore you can love with all your heart? What do arguments of this kind prove? But the free will does not need the grace of God, but can do all things by its own power. But it does not follow from this that man is converted by his own power, nor do the words say so. They simply say, if thou wilt turn, telling man what he should do, when he knows it and sees that he cannot do it, he will ask whence he may find the ability to do it. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. That, that's right on. I think that's what we're saying. And, and I, I love that because it's, it's, it's consistent with the scriptures. It's rich with good theology. And I mean, that's, it sounds like our convictions are very, lie very much in the same way. So I think we can yeah. put a pin on that one and say, synergy, like, what is it good for? <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's say it again. Awesome. So, so here's where it might get like more controversial, either for me and you or for people listening. And I want to talk about sanctification because this is a place where even a lot of the most staunch Calvinists will say, Salvation, I understand, is totally and completely a, a work of God. But with, uh, with sanctification, we sometimes feel like, well, there is like something, though, that I need to do. There is this work that must be done, and, and I think that does contribute. So maybe that is synergistic. Yeah. What say you, Tony? So I want before I say my say, I want to um, comment that this is something I have strong feelings about. I have strong opinions about, and I've stated them Mm -hmm. strongly, but I want to acknowledge (laughs) before I fly off the handle and start turning red again, that um, good, faithful, Bible-believing Calvinists can disagree on this, okay? There are are men that I respect who would say that sanctification is a synergistic enterprise. Um, There are men who I respect, such as Michael Horton, who would say that the concept of synergism versus monergism when you're talking about sanctification, is is like a non-starter. It's not even the right category. Fair um, enough. I would respectfully disagree with those people. Though. So um, I think the problem, maybe it's not a problem. I think the reason we have this tendency to think of sanctification as, um, as synergistic um, is because justification is something that happens outside of us, right? So justification is a legal declaration by God. We don't do anything in that process. There's, we're not even involved in the process except for the fact that we are the ones being declared just. We're being declared legally um, vindicated. But right. it's not as though God is somehow um, working inside of us to bring about that declaration. He's simply declaring it to be the case. Um, he's imputing Christ's righteousness to us. And even that language makes us feel like God is doing something to us. But all, all that that means is that God is looking at Christ's righteousness and counting it as ours. He's looking at our unrighteousness and counting it as Christ's. And so we are seen to be righteous in terms of legal status. 
Um, I almost said legal fiction, and that's the criticism. But sanctification happens inside of us. It is an inside-out change, where justification is an outside status change. Sanctification is a thing that happens inside of us. And so since we're um, directly involved in what's going on in a real um, metaphysical concrete sense— we have this tendency to feel like, well, we're more involved in the process than justification. And so if justification is monergistic, well, what is it? what's the next step of involvement? Well, synergistic, because we've already established that that's a binary switch. Either it's right. 100% God or it's part and part. It's, it's, you know, percentage me, percentage God. And where I think that goes wrong, though, is we're still seeing, um, we're seeing the works that come out of our safe sanctification we're seeing that as sanctification itself. So we're seeing the fact that I, um, I'm i learning to be a better husband or I'm learning to be more faithful in my scripture reading or I'm learning to be um, less um, less gossipy at work. Whatever whatever it is that God is, is changing in the, the outflows of our sanctification, we're thinking that that somehow contributes more to our sanctification. That as we walk in good works that somehow that makes us more holy. And that's a fundamental error, I think, that um, really, I think, needs to be nipped in the bud because it leads to a sort of default position of a works holiness, not a works righteousness, but like a works holiness that I think can be really damaging to people. Yeah, I like what you're saying there because I think you're taking it all the way back out in saying that salvation first is theocentric and then our works are derivative by nature, but we get it kind of flipped. And I think what you said there was right on about this idea of, well, if salvation is addressing two of the basic consequences of sin, one facet is forensic, and we have nothing to do with that. The other is renovative, and in a sense, we feel like we're contributing to that. But it's a bit like saying, my car works because I put gasoline in it. Right. Obviously, you can have a broken down car and you can fill it with much gasoline, but the, the fact that you put the gas in it does not prove that the vehicle is operative. This right. is actually getting weird now that I think about it. But I think part of this is there's a wrong-headed definition of the gospel. So this is where I'm kind of coming at it from. I think the gospel is sometimes defined as what Christ has done for us, and right. it doesn't include his work through the Spirit in us. And right. the effect of that outlook, whether it's intended or not, is that sanctification tends to be seen as the response of the believer to, to salvation defined in terms of justification. And, and I think maybe if we all spoke to each other and tried to understand these terms, we'd be a little better off. But I think it can be dangerous when we start to think, if I don't do certain things, if I don't read my Bible enough, if I'm not, or conversely, if you're taking some sense of joy in the fact that you are seeing real sanctification in your life, I think there is can be a tendency if you match that accomplishment with a specific task that you're you're taking that you feel like you are a contributor to it. Is that yeah, fair? It, it is, and so that this is the way um, I haven't finished "Devoted to God" by Saint Clair Ferguson, but just even like the introduction was like game changing. So the the phrase when we think about sanctification, and I'm reading um, sanctification in the Zondervan New Dogmatics um, series, and it it's. It's also a game changer. It's so good. Um, I'm going to have to try to do a full scale um, review of it when I get done. But the idea of sanctification is integrally connected with the idea of holiness. And when we talk about holiness, we have this tendency to think that it's just another way of talking about righteousness. And we have a tendency to think that both of them have to do with like morality and good behavior. And there's an element of that. But 
righteousness fundamentally is about legal standing, right? And someone who is um, perfectly obedient has a positive righteous standing, but not because of that. It's not that righteousness and morality are the same thing. And holiness is the same thing. Someone who is holy also will be a moral person, but morality and holiness are not the same thing. So here's what I like to like to think about is I could have, um, if you transport yourself back in time to the first century, you could have a bowl and that okay. bowl could be set aside or devoted for common use, or it could be devoted for holy use in the temple. Right. So um, the fact that it's set aside for common use determines what kinds of, what kinds of works are going to be done with and through that that instrument through that vessel. If it was set aside for common works, you know, you're going to be eating food in it. You might be washing yourself, washing dishes. You may be using it to go to the bathroom, all these different common things. If it's set aside for holiness, if it's sanctified for holy purposes, then it's going to, the the works that are done through it are going to be holy works. And we're the same way. Right When we are sanctified by the Spirit because of what Christ did, we're sanctified to his service. And so the works that are done through us as a result of that sanctification are holy works. Now, it's not the case that you could take a common bowl and just bring it to the temple and use it for the sacrifices. And then all of a sudden it becomes holy, right? You do that and you're going to get knocked dead by God because you're violating him. So it's not the works that are done that makes the vessel holy. It's the status of the vessel that determines what works come out. Yes. And I think that's where we really need to go with this is we need to understand we have to understand that our sanctification is not about performance or behavior management, right? It's not about making ourselves holy. It's about the fact that we have been made holy, and so God will use us for holy purposes. Right on. And that That's goes into like the, the Reformed and Lutheran understandings of vocation. I mean, there's a lot that plays into this, um, but I think it's just one of those like blind spots that the Reformed world for whatever reason, has just I, I haven't really seen a lot on it. Um, but this sanctification book is so good, um, and I haven't even gotten to the part that's talking about like the actual outflow of sanctification. We're still talking about like covenant and what sanctification means in the context of covenant. Um, but buy that book right now because it's amazing. That's why I think that what you're saying is not controversial, or it shouldn't be controversial, because what we're basically saying is morality is second order sanctification, but first order sanctification, the source comes from God himself. So first of all, and ultimately it's not a matter of what we do, but what God has done for us. Right. Exactly. So what the reformation I think did that was exceptional was articulate that sanctification, no less than justification is still a work of grace. Yeah. So if we, if we switch the order of those things or think that we have a lot to present or that we're accomplishing a lot, first of all, it's going to breed pride. It's going to cause problems with how we understand what God is doing in us and for us. It'll mess with our humility. So there are like real problems, real outworkings there. And like you said, I think it's so much more richer when we understand it properly because then it kind of spreads out into all our lives. It's not that we shouldn't do good things. Didn't even Luther say like faith is getting busy maybe not exactly like that but something like faith, <laughs> faith is, is getting busy what kind of podcast <laughs> is this faith is getting after it or something right. like that like of course there are good works but yeah he said the path it in german good, though yeah it was it sounds way better in german but <laughs> the the path of good works runs not from man to god but from god to man so even for like paul our good works are not ours but god's they are his work begun and continuing in us 
and his being at work in us, both to will and to do what pleases him. So I like the emphasis of saying we need to kind of back that thing up when it comes to understanding the source of sanctification and then understanding the root from which all of our good works, in quotation marks, so to speak, come from. Yeah. So I guess it's controversial, but I wonder if, and me included, like we haven't spent enough time meditating on what sanctification means in a monergistic sense. Yeah. So we, this is not the first time that this has happened. We don't, we don't prep for these shows too much. And it's <laughs> definitely not the first time. I that literally, <laughs> well, that, yeah, I literally, you could probably see I was playing on my tablet, trying to find something. I literally was just pulling up Philippians two thirteen. Yeah. And as I found it, you said it. So boom, I'm going to read the whole thing again, just to sort of land it. Um, yeah. Hit us with that Philippians. Goodness. I don't know what version this is. I think it's the SV. Therefore, starting verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what this is saying is that God works first. God works in us. That's sanctification. And then because of that sanctification, he works in us not only to bring about the works, but to bring about our will to bring about the works. Yes. So he doesn't just, he doesn't turn us into puppets to do his good pleasure. He actually changes us so that we are voluntarily, right? Voluntus is the, the Latin word for will. He voluntarily do his good pleasure. And so I, I think why, where it becomes controversial, and maybe this is something to put a pin in until part two of this episode someday in the future, is it becomes controversial because people will immediately say, well, it sounds like you're saying that we just don't have to do any good works. It sounds like you're saying that sanctification and good works are not related to each other in any sense. And that's not at all what we're saying. And I'm I'm not sure how you would hear that, um, but I've had people say that to me in the past. So before we before we close, I just want to say there is no context for a Christian not to be obedient to the law. There's no justified right. context for a Christian not to strive for moral uprightness and holiness, right? And that's because of what I said. It's because of the fact that we are set apart for God's holy purpose, that Christians do not have an excuse to, to live lives as though we were set apart for common purposes or for profane purposes. And that's where people like Tulian Chavidian, I think, go off the rails, is rather than taking that sanctification track to its conclusion and say, no, our good works matter so much they matter so much because that's what we're built for and that's what we're called to. They say, well, they really just don't matter all that much because we're already justified and we can't lose our justification. Right. Well, yeah, I guess, but you're missing the whole point. It's like yes. you've missed a full half of what it means for Christ to save you and call you to his purposes. You've right. stopped short of the full blessing of Christ, which is not just that we don't have to face the wrath of God anymore, but we get to be his righteous heirs. We get to be his righteous children who accomplish his will. We get to go into the party, which he's prepared for us as the prodigal child who's been called. Home. And that right. that's the gospel, right? The gospel isn't a cosmic get out of jail free card. It's a cosmic, you are now the heirs of the universe with card. And that's so much better. It's so much better. Exactly. It, th- I like your metaphor. It's like basically if there was a giant party, 
and you were invited. It's you trying to, to get in by working as as one of the caterers when you could have yeah. just come to the party and enjoyed right. all of its full, the full scope of its blessing and celebration. And sure, like when it's all over, you could say to people, yeah, I was at the party and at a yeah. great time. But but this you do not have to work in that way. You you have a right to be invited in a sense because of what Christ has done for you. Or it's like going to a baseball game and sitting backwards and not seeing the field. It's just this weirdness of living in the shadow. Yeah. By trying to accomplish something, I guess I've I've never really struggled with that honestly because it always seemed to me that the life that has been united with Christ is one that's fundamentally changed and wants to do these things because that's who they are now. Exactly. The difference between wanting to do something and must do something, because somebody who's been changed says I must do this because it is the essential part of who I am now. As opposed to the person who says, well, I have to do this because if I don't, I'm going to be guilty or I'm not following through on what I think I need to do. It's a big difference between the two. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll close with one one sort of last thought. So I remember um, when I proposed to Ashley, right? I proposed on um, one evening. It was a Friday Friday night. And um, your parents came down for the proposal. We were living in Boston at seminary. Your parents drove down from New Hampshire and they stayed overnight and we went out for breakfast the next morning. And um, I'm going to try not to tear up when I say this. I remember when um, we got done with breakfast and we walked mom and dad out to the car. And before that day, I I don't want to say I was required, but I called your dad, Dr. Schwamm. It was a very formal, I mean, we were friendly, but it was a very formal kind of interaction. And I, I said, well, drive safe, Dr. Schwamm. And he reached over and he gave me a hug and he said, you get to call me dad now. And it was this beautiful moment of you, you now get to call me dad because that's who I am to you. And you are now my son. And for me, for me to try to, um, think that, somehow that status change, me calling him dad is what makes the status change real. Right. Right. That's the same thing as saying good works is what sanctifies. It's it's flipping the equation around. I get to call him dad because of the the state of affairs that is real. The reality of the fact that I was now engaged to marry his daughter and now am now married to his daughter. That's why I get to call him dad. And that's why I get to call your, your mother mom is because that is a reality. It's a real thing that has been established. It's not being established. It's not somewhere in the future or partially established. It is a state of reality. And because of that, there are logical and um, concrete actual outcomes of that. And that right. sanctification, the good works are the concrete outcomes of our sanctification. Amen. And why would you go back to calling them anything else exactly. but that? Because they've invited you into that relationship. And even more than that, it's not as if they're forcing you now to call them mom and dad, but right. you do that out of your own volition. Yeah. And, yeah, And, and I and, think that's a great example. Yeah. And, and to sort of like draw the analogy a little further, hopefully without breaking it, like that took some getting used to. There was, a, there was a couple months sure. where like when I would call and say, hi, Dr. Schwamm, I, I would have to catch myself and be like, I mean, dad, like there was, there was a learning curve. And the same thing happens in our salvation, right? We grow in holiness because we sort of get used to the reality of who we are. Now, it's not true. Some of the more extreme Lutherans will say that sanctification is just um, getting used to your justification. That's 
That's not true. But there is a learning curve as we start to grow and become more in accord with the reality of who God has made us. Um, that doesn't happen instantly. And praise God it doesn't happen instantly because the, the process of growing in holiness is something that I, I don't think um, we would want to miss out on, even though it's frustrating and difficult at times and we have starts and stops and you know we, we slide back, all of these things happen, but ultimately like those things happen for our good um, and they're there for our edification. Right on. And if you're growing in your own holiness and want to let us know, want to jump into this conversation, or maybe you also affirm the thing I affirmed at the beginning of this conversation about just being exposed to people that you disagree with and we are that people, you can call <laughs> us. And leave a voicemail, which we would encourage you to do. What is that number, Tony? 603-444. No, 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 no. 607-444. I'm going to do that all the time now. 607-444-2767. If you don't get a voicemail and you're talking to somebody, it's probably because you called a number in New Hampshire. Yeah, please don't call that number in New Hampshire because I don't want people to be annoyed with the fact that they're getting all these Christians who call them at random times. It would be great, though, if that person at the other end of the phone was just a solid Christian. It would be cool. Or if they were a listener, if somehow it happened out that they were a listener. Oh, that'd be so great. Someone's like, wait, that's my phone number. That would be so great. Yeah, so leave us a voicemail. Again, we're going to be taking some of those calls. And also make sure you go and try to sign up providentially for the two-book giveaway. Two great books. Yes. Good way to start 2018. It's a great way to start 2018. So- I mean, this is, I think this has been a great conversation. I think we're going to have to pick it up because it's bigger than just one hour long episode. I agree. We should come back to this because this also kind of bleeds into some of the things we're going to talk about in 2018, like yeah. law. And there's and a lot there that I think is yeah contiguous at, you know, at the very least. Absolutely. Well, I think that just about does it until next time. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.